Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Myers is um, a young lady that, that we've asked to come and, and, and share her testimony or a little bit about her testimony this morning. She's actually Sarah's cousin, Cindy Skipworth's niece, I think. There's a lot of connections here at the church, and, and uh, Morgan is currently living in Birmingham, but feels a call to go overseas to East Asia and is leaving in July. And anytime she's here for the weekend to see family, and anytime I got a chance to put somebody up in front of you that's going overseas, I want to do it, just give you the opportunity to hear from them and, and to be encouraged and really challenged by that. So we've asked her to come this morning and share a little bit. Uh, tell us kind of why you're going, because Morgan has a degree. She went to tech. Uh, go dogs. She went to tech. Just kidding. <laughs> has, a, has a great degree and had the opportunity to have a great career and chose instead to go overseas. Tell us how that process kind of happened for you. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I had graduated with an engineering degree at that point and um, had felt a call towards the nations my whole life. But when I graduated, I took a role in a consulting firm doing business work and started telling the Lord how I was going to use that to bless his kingdom and just had this moment of conviction where the Lord said, Morgan, when you asked me to be Lord of your life, did you ask me to be Lord of your life? Um, what would it look like to lay your plans on my altar, um, and, and to ask me what I have for you. Um, and I was like, wow, okay. Um, all right, God, what does that look like? What do I need to do? And, um, just started praying and asking the Lord what he would have for my life. And, um, he just, he told me, I've, I've given you so many beautiful gifts. I've given you your family. I've given you your job. I've given you a love. You grew up in a home that loved me and worshiped me. There are so many people in the world that don't even have access to that love, even if they wanted it, um, that are living in spiritual darkness, um, that have families and jobs and homes. Um, what would it look like to give up all of those things on my altar, your job, your family, your marital status, um, to follow me places you couldn't fathom, um, you couldn't dream that I will be with you? Um, and so did the most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life, and I said yes to the Lord in that moment, and I feel like I woke up one day in Birmingham, Alabama, working for a nonprofit um, on my way to move to Asia long-term. And so. Wow. And so how did you settle in on, on Asia? How did that process take place for you? Yeah, so after, shortly after I'd prayed that prayer, about a week later, I randomly met someone at my church whose job at the church was to help train up people that want to move overseas long-term. And just happened to run into her because that's what God does. And um, she just started discipling me and ministering to me about what the Lord was teaching me. And um, there was a nine-month training group at my church for those who were committed to moving overseas in the next one to three years. And so I did that, and the Lord started breaking my heart for everywhere, um, especially those that are unreached and in the 1040 window where there's just so much brokenness and 
then I prayed and asked him if he wanted me to move to give me a team, and he did. And it was a Georgia Tech team leader. Um, I had already been reading the Bible with two girls from this country and just fell in love with the culture. Um, and so it was like a silver platter. It was like he just did what I couldn't even imagine. And this team is already family to me. Um, and some are already there, and some are here in the States and Alabama and in Texas preparing to go with me. So. And what's the need where you're going? What, what specifically is the need? Yes, I would say the greatest need where I'm going right now um, is just the church is getting pretty heavily persecuted where I'm going right now. Um, there's a new wave coming up. And ironic to what the American church prays a lot of time, um, a lot of times when you talk to these nationals, they actually don't ask for you to pray against persecution or to pray for safety. But they ask for boldness and for courage um, because for them, they have truly lived out that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, and so just praying for boldness and courage for the national believers there as well as my team as we are putting ourselves at risk but also putting them at risk because by being seen with us, um, it puts them on a radar and on a map with the government. So. And leaving in July, mm -hmm. tell us how we can pray for you. Yeah, that would be great. Um, for health, I was in Asia for a good bit this summer and got a few um, parasites, which is not fun to deal with, and just already feeling the, the warfare that exists whenever you do say yes to the Lord. Satan does not like that. Um, and so just health for our team and um, just continued abiding in Christ because that's literally the best thing you could do your whole life, no matter what God calls you to do. So Very good. Yeah. Let's thank Morgan for what she's doing. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. Anytime we can be challenged with what God's doing in other places and, and challenged in our personal thoughts and in our beliefs, we should, we should do that. So, Morgan, thank you so much for being here. Let me pray for us, and we're going to begin now. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather together, Lord, on, on your day, a day of rest, uh, Lord, a day of worship, just the opportunity to gather together with, with like-minded believers and to praise your name, Lord, to worship you. I thank you for what you're doing here at our church, Father. I, I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts uh, Lord, I pray that this new year would be the, the, the best year we've ever seen as we, Lord, try to delve in even more deeply into your, into your word and to love you and to serve you more, Father. And so I pray for our time right now, Lord, as we open the truth of your word, give us clarity and understanding, Father. May we be challenged and, and convicted. And Father, through the power of the Spirit, may we be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're beginning a brand new sermon series this morning in the gospel of Mark. And I'm excited about it for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons I'm excited about it is I've been praying about this and thinking about this for uh, really a few months and, and, and real specifically over the last several weeks. I'm excited about it because uh, I've never preached all the way through one of the gospels. I've preached through other books in scripture. If you've been here with us for a while, you know that I enjoy doing that. We've done several books. Uh, I preach a lot out of the gospels. But I've never started in verse 1 and kind of worked all the way through. So I'm excited about Mark for that reason. But another reason I'm really excited about the study of Mark is because Mark is kind of an action gospel. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of things that happen. Jesus doesn't just sit around. In fact, the word immediately is used over 40 times in the gospel of Mark, way more than in any of the other gospels. It's about action. It's about movement. It's about miracles. It's about Jesus performing some pretty incredible things. And one of the themes we're going to see, and we'll flesh this out really more next week and the weeks following, is kind of the, uh, the idea of the growth 
the idea of the increase of Jesus' authority, people recognizing that he's Messiah. And if you wanted to kind of graph the book of Mark, and I know that sounds a little strange, but if you wanted to graph the book of Mark related to the importance, uh, really in the popularity of Jesus, beginning in verse 1-1, it'd be at zero. And really through chapter 8, it would kind of just skyrocket upwards. Like the excitement of the people, the popularity of Jesus, the crowds that are gathered. And we're going to see that over the next few weeks. That's a point I'm going to make and I want you to see. just kind of goes up and up and up. And then Peter has this interesting encounter with Jesus. I'm not going to give it away. You can go read it yourself in Mark chapter 8. He has a very interesting encounter with Jesus. Jesus kind of lets his people know, listen, I appreciate you following me. But if you're going to continue, it's going to cost you something. And his followers kind of drop off. And then Jesus heads to Jerusalem and you know the rest of the story. So I'm excited about Mark because it's going to challenge us. It's going to encourage us. I want to give you just a little bit of background before we jump right in this morning because there's a lot we need to cover. Mark was written by Mark. That may, may sound obvious to you, but as we study through Mark, you're going to realize at no point in the gospel does he say he's the author. At no point has he signed it. Basically, we believe that Mark wrote this because of church history, because of the traditions of the first century church fathers because of some of the writings that was attributed to Mark. And people believe that Mark, who studied under Peter and studied under Paul, heard the stories, knew the accounts, wrote the accounts, and gave us a real clear kind of action-packed gospel of all Jesus did. Now, Mark is the first gospel written, and I want to put this in perspective for you. This is important because a lot of times we think about the gospels and how far after they were written and how much did these people actually know. Most scholars think Mark was written somewhere around 60 A.D., some think it was as early as 50 or 55 A.D. Jesus, to give you a little bit of perspective, died sometime around 30 or 35 A.D. So Mark writes his gospel approximately 15, 20, 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now here's why that's important, to put it in modern terms. It would be like me asking you, if you're a little bit older, to talk about 9-11. That was roughly 20 years ago. If I said to you, listen, I need you to tell me what happened on 9-11, especially if I gave you an eyewitness, somebody was in one of the Twin Towers, the two of you sat down and kind of talked through, you could write a pretty orderly account from an eyewitness testimony from what you knew and what that person knew of what happened on 9-11. That's the amount of information you would have. That's how much Mark knew. Mark was there. Mark knew Peter. Mark was just a few years after Jesus had died and then rose again and ascended into heaven. So Mark is an expert. Mark knows what he's talking about. He understands the stories. He's written about the stories. And there's a theme that I want you to see in these first few verses that's really important. It's interesting to me. I've read through Mark numerous times uh, over my life, and I've read through the other Gospels, as many of you probably have. But there's something in the first part of Mark especially that I want you to see and understand that's really going to help us understand how the rest of the Gospel plays out. I'm going to give you just a little bit of taste of it now because I want you to see what we're looking for, and then we're going to look at specifics as we walk through these passages together. Mark, because he's the first Gospel, is the first writing since the end of the Old Testament. So when Malachi finishes, and you don't have to flip back, but the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. After Malachi finishes, there's 400 years roughly of silence. No other prophets have spoken. No other books have been written. There's nothing else said about the Lord. And all of a sudden when Mark comes on the scene and he writes in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, this is the first time in 400 years somebody has written about the things of the Lord. Now, this is important for Mark because here's what Mark's going to do, and here's the theme we need to understand. Mark is tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
Like Mark wants us to understand, it's not as if the Old Testament is something we've done and we've finished and we've settled it and the New Testament is something brand new. Instead, what Mark wants us to see is the New Testament is really a continuation of the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament, what the prophets spoke of, how they looked ahead to Messiah, all the things that happened in the Old Testament is really a continuation for Mark into the New Testament. So he's going to build this bridge for us. He's going to build this bridge for us that we're going to walk across to connect what the Old Testament said and how the Old Testament writers believed and Jesus. That's the connection. Now, remember, I want to put this in context before we start Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is easy for us because we've been around for a while and we've read this. We know the stories. We know the accounts of Jesus. We know his life. We know how it ended. We know, we know all that because we've studied it. We have the Bible. For the people that Mark was writing to, there were no other Gospels. Like, they couldn't go read the Gospel of John and then the Gospel of Matthew. Mark was the first Gospel written, the only thing written after Malachi. They had no idea when they first started reading this, many people, that Jesus was Messiah. They knew the Old Testament stories, but to make the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets would have been a jump for them. Mark's going to help us do that. So let's jump right in. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, right? Mark's already going back now to the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to make the first truth, the first point I want you to see, and then we're going to walk back through it together. Truth number one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ ushers in a new world order. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ ushers in a new world order. Now, the beginning of the gospel is how Mark starts this passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel just means proclamation it means good news. And Mark is saying to us, listen, after 400 years of silence, after 400 years of nothing, we now have this good news. We now have this gospel. We have this message that we're proclaiming to you. And he's going to make this connection for us, which is interesting. He's going to talk about the wilderness. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of background here of the Old Testament because I don't want you to be unaware of where this comes from and how Mark makes this connection. Mark is interested in thinking about wilderness. We're going to see it in Mark here in just a second, but let me just remind you of the Old Testament. Many of you know the story, but if you don't, let me just recount it for you very briefly. The children of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. They'd been in Egypt for about 400 years. God comes to Moses in the burning bush. Many of you know the story of the burning bush. God says to Moses, listen, you need to go to the Pharaoh. You need to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go, let the people of Israel go. So Moses eventually obeys. He goes to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh sends the ten plagues. The final, was, the final one is the death angel. We talk about that in the Passover. And Pharaoh basically says, listen, I've had enough. 
people of Israel, get out, leave Egypt. And so they do. So the people of Egypt leave Israel. They go through the Red Sea, which we're going to get to in just a second. Mark talks about that as well. They leave the Red Sea, and where do they go? Do you remember? Into the wilderness. Now, the plan is for them to walk through the wilderness, go into the promised land. Like God has got this incredible plan for them, and there's kind of a point of application here for us. God's got this incredible plan for them. He wants them to walk through and trust him and obey him. He's going to lead them to the promised land, but instead they're unfaithful. Instead, they can't trust the Lord, they, they bicker, they, they get angry, they don't listen to Moses, they complain. There's kind of this push and pull between them and the Lord. The Lord gives them the law and says, hey, follow the law. They can't do that. It becomes very evident in their process of walking and in the wilderness that they can't do it themselves. Instead, we see in Scripture they need somebody else. And so what the prophets eventually write about is the Savior. They needed a Savior. And so Mark makes this interesting connection for us. He says, listen, the people of Israel walked out of Egypt, wandered into the wilderness. Now, I want you to see what he does here. Look at verse 2. Pull up verse 2 of Mark chapter 1 again for me, please. I want you to see. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Right. So Isaiah is prophesying that one day the messenger will come that will prepare the way for the Lord. He's speaking of John here. Now, verse 3 the voice of one crying in the what? Wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now before we go to verse 4, remember John the Baptist has come out into the wilderness. Right? He's dressed in camel hair, he's eating locusts and wild honey, kind of a strange thing for us, not normal for that time period. But it demonstrates a man who's living in the wilderness it demonstrates a man who's kind of come out of the cities. It demonstrates a man who's not living among civilized people. God has specifically called him out of those things into the wilderness so he can now proclaim the ways of the Lord. Now, Mark has quoted Isaiah in verses 2 and 3. Now, in verse 4, listen to what he says. We have it on the screen. John appeared baptizing in the, there it is again, the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Mark is making this connection for us, and we need to see this. This is important. Mark says the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Right? They could not serve the Lord. They could not follow his direction. They didn't listen to him. It took them 40 years to finally get to the promised land. Now, out of the wilderness, another one has come to proclaim the ways of the Lord. This one that's coming will show the people of Israel, will show the Jewish people especially, that he is the Messiah, and through trusting the Lord... We can walk through the wilderness and see the will of the Lord in our lives and see that God will save those people who will trust him. So Jesus is kind of taking this place of the people of Israel. He's demonstrating to them the ability to serve the Lord and follow him in all things. Now, here's the application for us. It's interesting to me. This wilderness motif is, is really, you, you can delve a lot into this. You can go kind of as, as deep as this as you want to go. But the interesting thing to me is that God calls John out into the wilderness John goes into the wilderness and begins to preach and proclaim. And then we see something very interesting happen, something that's kind of unusual. The Bible says, listen, not only is John in the wilderness, but now he's calling these people out. The Bible said he's calling these people out into the area that he's living, out into the wilderness. Look at verse 5. Pull verse 5 up if you would for me, please. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's this sense that John is saying, listen, you need to come out of the cities. You need to come out of the civilized area that you live in. You need to come out of your comfort zone 
into the wilderness where the Lord can speak to you, the Lord can work through you, the Lord can do great things in your life. So here's the challenge for us. Like it's very easy for us to get caught up in the civilized, easy, comfortable life, isn't it? It's very easy for us to kind of have our schedule. Our family's probably like your family. We've got a pretty set routine. Certain days mean certain things, and certain times during those days mean certain things. And every now and then we vary from that, but not very often. We become pretty comfortable in that routine. And oftentimes, many believers come very, become very comfortable in their spiritual routine. It's kind of the same thing. We're doing the same thing. We're comfortable. We're living in the same kind of rut as it comes to our spiritual life. John's saying, listen, sometimes the Lord calls you out of that comfort into the wilderness. Because sometimes it's in the wilderness where the Lord speaks to you in very powerful ways. And if we're not careful, we stay in that rut. I mean, this young lady that spoke this morning, Morgan, I mean, that, that, that's her, and there are obviously so many others like her, and many of you have experienced this as well. But it's very easy for us to kind of get in that rut and think, I'm going to go to school, get my degree, get my job, have a family, move on through life. Nothing wrong with any of those things. No sin in any of that. But out of the blue, the Lord called her out of her comfort zone into a wilderness. I think that's an interesting thing for us to consider. I think that's a powerful illustration for us to begin to process, pray through, think through, apply to our lives. Right? So let's continue. Right? We're making the connection. Old Testament, New Testament, wilderness to wilderness, repentance of sins, which is we're going to see here in just a second through Christ. Now look at verse 9. Let's continue. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here's the second truth I want you to see. The baptism of Jesus begins his public ministry. The baptism of Jesus begins his public ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has pretty much lived in obscurity. Now, we have to be careful here because there's not a lot written in Scripture about those first 30 years or so. We, we would say basically Jesus was born, lived 30 years, had about three years of ministry, was crucified, died, rose again. In those 30 years when Jesus is kind of preparing for his ministry, there's not a whole lot in the Scripture. There's a couple of verses here and there. He grew in wisdom and stature, love of God and man, but there's not a whole lot about his life. And so we have to be careful assuming things, but one of the things we can notice in Scripture and, and the Gospel of John talks a little bit more about this, is that Jesus lived among these people before he began his ministry. So I believe, personally, this is my opinion, I'm not telling you this is what the Scripture says, I believe Jesus walked and lived among the people and they all knew him, and all of a sudden, when he was called to ministry, their eyes were kind of opened. In fact, John says, the Gospel of John says, listen, there's one among you that you don't know yet that's the Son of God. That's what the Gospel of John says. And so Jesus, kind of living in obscurity here, when he begins his public ministry, it's going to begin with his baptism. Now again, we're making the case here that Mark is connecting old and new. We're making the case that he's building this bridge between the Old Testament and the people of Israel, making the case for these people that God has sent his son Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. So let me remind you again. Again, this is not a sermon on the Old Testament, but there's a lot of things we need to understand. So let's back up again just for a second to Exodus. People of Israel have come out of Egypt. Pharaoh's kind of had enough with them. He sent them out. They flee Egypt, the Bible says, very quickly. And if you remember the story, the first thing that kind of happens to them, the first big thing that happens to them is they go up against the Red Sea. 
Now, in the process of them leaving, Pharaoh has changed his mind. Many of you remember that part of the story. So Pharaoh sends out his chariots and his armies. They pursue the people of Israel. They're now kind of stuck between the rock and the hard place, right? There's the Red Sea on one side. There's the army of Pharaoh on the other. And they're not quite sure what they're going to do. And so they begin to grumble again. They complain. Moses, did you really bring us out here to die? I mean, we're either going to drown in the ocean or the chariots are going to run us over or Pharaoh's going to kill us. Why did you bring us out here? And something very interesting happens in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. We have that on the screen. I want you to notice it, okay? Moses said to the people, this is Moses speaking, Fear not, stand firm, and see the, what's the word there? Salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry, made the land dry, and the waters were divided. You say, do you really believe that happened? Absolutely, I believe it happened. Absolutely. Verse 22, and the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. You may remember, they made it across dry land when Pharaoh and his army tried to follow them. What happened? The sea closed back over them. They were destroyed. The people of Israel were saved. Now, I would say to you, this account of the people of Israel in the Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, we've already seen that picture, the story of them crossing over the Red Sea, walking through the waters to lead them to salvation is a precursor to the idea of baptism. So when these people see Jesus baptized, they're reminded of what God did with the people of Israel. They're reminded of the Exodus. They're reminded of God's faithfulness. They're reminded of God's power. And so I I just want to spend a couple of minutes. I I don't ever want to lose the opportunity. We have a chance to talk about a a little bit of doctrine and for you to kind of think about it and process it a little bit. I want to talk for just a minute about this idea of baptism. Many of you probably understand it. Some of you may not. And so I just want to kind of very quickly make a scriptural case for it. Make sure you get it and and understand it. And if you want to know more, feel free to come down after or set an appointment with me this week. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But the original Greek word is baptizo, which literally means to immerse. Right, so, so, so again, I understand there's debate among different groups and different denominations, and some would pour, some would sprinkle. One of the distinctions of the Baptist church is we believe that baptism is by submersion all the way under the water. One of the reasons we believe that is because of the original word itself. Another reason we believe that is we think there's scriptural evidence. Look at verse, verse 10 again of Mark chapter 1. The Bible says, and when Jesus came up out of the water, you see that? There's no sense that they poured or sprinkled. There's a sense that he was literally down in the Jordan River. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descend on him like a dove. Acts 8, 38. This is Peter, Philip and the eunuch. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Philip was baptized. So there are all these accounts in Scripture of going down into the water. So we would say baptism is by immersion all the way under the water. Now, I want to be clear about this because sometimes there's confusion. I have conversations with people every now and then, and they have confusion about this. Baptism does not save you. I want to be clear there. Baptism does not save you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says we're, we're saved by faith, basically. It's of God, not of ourselves, so we can't boast. So we would say we're saved by placing our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ by repenting of our sins, 
and believing. That's what leads us to salvation. So the question becomes, well, if baptism doesn't actually save us, why do we do it? There, there, there are a few reasons we baptize. One, it's commanded by Jesus. This is what he did. This is his example. Jesus was baptized. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. You know the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? We believe Jesus commanded us to baptize. We believe Jesus commanded us to be baptized. And so we do. Another reason we baptize is it's an opportunity for us to publicly profess our faith in Christ. Now, I want to kind of put this in perspective for you because in the American church and kind of the Western world, it's a little bit different for us. Baptism for us is a, a, a big thing. It's a day of celebration. It's a day that we get excited about. It's important that we do it. And, and by the way, let me just, just put on the brakes for a second and step out here. We have uh, quite a few people lined up to be baptized we're not baptizing now because we don't have a baptistry. That's come up a couple of times, and I've had questions about that. We looked at bringing a portable baptistry in here, but couldn't figure out a good place to put it and just didn't think we could make it work, and so we're just kind of putting those people off. We've baptized a few in swimming pools, uh, but I don't want you to think we don't have anybody that's being saved right now. We do. We just don't have a place to baptism, baptize. So when the new sanctuary opens, we'll have a, a list of people that will go through the baptism process. So, okay, back to this. Believer's baptism is a public testimony. It's an opportunity for you to say to the world, listen, I believe Jesus is my Savior, and I'm willing to publicly profess that to you. Now, for us, it's a big deal because it's a day of celebration, joy, excitement. All those things are good. You go outside of kind of the Western world, especially where this young lady's going to be going in places that are very difficult, and when people decide to be baptized, for them, it can literally be a decision between life and death. Because it's one thing for them to profess Christ and believe. It's another thing for them to say, I'm willing to be baptized openly for all my family and friends to see it. Because for a lot of these people, when they're baptized, that's the moment where persecution begins, families disown them, they're thrown in jail, sometimes they're even killed. Jeremy and I have had this conversation. That's what happens in Indonesia. It's not a day of celebration necessarily. It is a day kind of, this is what I'm serious about. This is who I am. This is the decision I've made. I'm willing literally to give my life for this. So baptism is a big deal. It's a public testimony, a public opportunity for people to know you've accepted Christ. A third reason we baptize is because it symbolizes the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? When we baptize, we, we talk about buried in sin raised to experience new life. It's a picture of Christ. Christ was killed, obviously, buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. So when we baptize people and we take them under the water, it's symbolic of, listen, this old life is dead to me. The life of sin is gone. I've been washed away. I've been cleansed of my sins. I'm going to be raised again to new life. I'm going to walk in newness of life. I'm going to experience a new life. Right? It's symbolic. It's a picture of what Jesus did. It's a reminder to the world of what we've done. And it shows everybody that watches, listen, this is real to me. This matters to me. I understand Christ did this. I am being baptized with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Scripture teaches. That's why we baptize. It's not just some silly little thing we do because we want to dunk somebody in some water. It's very important scripturally. There's a mandate for it. There's symbolism in it. Jesus commanded it, so we do it. Now, I want you to notice. I'm, I'm running low on time here. I want you to notice in verse 10. Something important happens. When he came up out of the water, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now if you're not careful here, you blow right through this and you miss that this is the Trinity at work. Right? If you ever had, I know you guys sit around the office and you just have spiritual conversations and you talk about doctrine at lunch, right? So tomorrow when you're talking about baptism, you can, talk, you can bring people to Mark chapter 1, you can show them. Now you can also talk to people about the Trinity because sometimes the, the discussion is, is the Trinity found in Scripture? Well, the word Trinity is not. So if you go to Strong's Concordance and look up the word Trinity, you're not going to find it anywhere. But if you want to see a demonstration of the Trinity... Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, the Bible says this. When he came up out of the water, a spirit came on him like a dove. That's the Holy Spirit. A voice from heaven said, you're my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's God the Father. And then, of course, Jesus himself was being baptized. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a picture of the Trinity. Picture of the Trinity very simply in the baptism of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to be baptized. He's going to come up out of the water. God is going to bless him. The Spirit is going to come upon him. And then verse 12, we have it on the screen. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately, there's that word. We'll see the word immediately a lot. Immediately drove him out into the wilderness. There's the wilderness idea again. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now we don't have a lot in Mark, about the account of the temptation of Christ. If you wanted to read about the specifics, you'd go read Matthew chapter 4. There's a lot in Matthew chapter 4 that kind of lays out the temptation, lays out the time in the wilderness, but just kind of very quickly, just so you'll remember, when Jesus is in the wilderness, the devil comes and tempts him. And he tempts him kind of three different times, and each time Jesus responds to that temptation. Do you remember how? With Scripture. Right, which is just, just, a, just a point of application, man. Anytime the enemy attacks you and tries to defeat you, respond with Scripture. That's why, by the way, just connecting dots here, that's why it's important for you to read Scripture. That's why it's important for you to memorize Scripture. That's why it's important for you to understand Scripture because you've got an actual uh, way to defend yourself against the enemy when he attacks. But the enemy comes and attacks. The, de uh, the devil comes and attacks Jesus Three different times Jesus answers that attack. Jesus rebuts the devil. And Jesus walks out of the wilderness sinless, trusting God the Father, willing to do the will of the Father. Right? Now for the people of Israel, that's different because what they've known of the wilderness is the people walking in the wilderness. They could not defeat the devil. They couldn't follow God. They couldn't walk out of the wilderness in 40 days. Instead, they're mired in their sin and in their wandering. Jesus says, listen, I've come to take the place. I've come to demonstrate to you that I'm Messiah, that I'm going to give my life for your sins, that it is possible to wander through the wilderness and trust the Lord and follow him. One writer explained it like this. He said, in other words, where Israel failed during the time of the testing in the desert, Jesus succeeds by recounting the words that Israel should have said. Jesus' life seems to be repeating Israel's experience in the Exodus. So we've got this connection, right? Again, for the Jewish people, this strong connection, the wilderness, this strong connection of the temptation, this strong connection of the baptism. It's kind of like the, the, the Jewish people that would be reading this in the first century, the light bulb would have kind of slowly come on. You ever watch somebody that kind of slowly figures something out and you kind of see that look like, okay, yeah, I get it, right? You just see this in the Jewish people's minds, right? They're figuring this out. This guy, this Jesus, 
who claims to be God's son, as they read this and understand, they begin to understand, listen, there's a connection with him in the Old Testament. There's a connection with these prophecies. I'm beginning to now piece this together to understand this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. So now this is important because Jesus is now going to speak to them. He's going to give them direction. Look at verse 14. We're winding this thing down. Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee. And by the way, he's going to do the vast majority of his work around the Sea of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, now hear the words of Christ, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's truth number three. The call of Jesus to repentance brings salvation. The call of Jesus to repentance brings salvation. Now I want you to notice what he says again there in verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, right? In other words, all that you've read, all of the prophets, all of the things of all, those things have now been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, here I am, Jesus says. All you've studied, all you've read, all you understand, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he makes this just incredibly important command to these people, the first command he gives them, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, listen, all that you've heard about Messiah, all you've heard about the prophecies, all you've studied all your life. And by the way, Israel had been looking for Messiah for decades, for centuries, for generations. Jesus says, listen, I'm here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need Israel because you couldn't do it in the wilderness you couldn't do it through the law. You couldn't do it through the prophets. You couldn't do it during the judges. You couldn't do it at all in the Old Testament. You need to repent and believe in the gospel. Now here's the connection for us. I'm going to make this real simple. The same repentance that Christ called the first century church to, he calls us to this repentance as well. It's the same. It's not like he called them to repent and believe and we don't have to do those things. It's the same call today. It's the same call we've received. It's the same call we ought to give. And, and by the way, if you've already done this and accepted and repented and believed, then your call in life now is to share this with other people. Did you know that? Like it's part of what you ought to be doing. We ought to be sharing the gospel. We ought to be talking about how, how Christ has worked in our lives and how he's changed us and how he's molded us and how we're different than we were before. One, one writer said it like this. He said, the passages that talk about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt is fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Jesus is cast as the true and faithful Israel. Mark is retelling Israel's well-known story, but he's putting Jesus right in the middle as the main character in the story. Jesus is the new Israel. And so I want you to see this command of repentance. I want you to see this command of belief. And I just want to end with this. I don't ever want to miss the opportunity of kind of explaining salvation. And I know many, many people in this room have accepted Christ. I know many of you have been believers for a number of years. But I understand in a church this size with three different services, there are people that are going to come and go. And there are people that are probably sitting here today that have never repented of their sins. So let me just be real clear about it. The calling, the claim of Christ is still the same. As a, a, a human being, the Bible says, we're all sinners. Like Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. Every one of us, myself included, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, but there's not a day goes by that I don't get in bed at night and I think to myself, you know, I really dropped the ball there. I wish I'd done that differently. I blew it. You know, some days are a lot worse than others and I just really mess it up. 
But even I go through, even as I go through life as a believer, I understand that I'm still a sinner. I'm still in desperate need of a savior. And what the Bible teaches is even though we're sinners, the Bible says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And, and we understand that Jesus' death on the cross offers us forgiveness of our sins. This is important. Past, present, and future. And the Bible says, listen, we need to repent of our sins. We need to understand our sins, see that we're sinful, see that we don't measure up to the things of the Lord and who God wants us to be. And when we recognize that, we repent of those sins. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me of these things that I've done. Forgive me of the mistakes that I've made. I believe Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for my sins. I'm repenting of my sins. I want to accept that love and that forgiveness, and I want to make Christ the Lord of my life. That's what salvation is. And so I'm going to give you this opportunity right now. As our praise team comes up and they begin to get ready to play, I'm going to give you this opportunity. During this time of invitation, certainly you can come and pray. The altar is always open. It's a chance for you to come and just pour out your heart to the Lord. I'm happy to pray with you. Others will come and pray with you if you want to do that. But it's also an opportunity for you. If you've never done this, and I know it takes courage. I know sometimes it can be scary in front of a large group of people. But if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you feel just something kind of churning in your heart right now, it's probably the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you just to walk down and let's just talk about it. Let's just talk about Christ's love, about his forgiveness, about all he would do for you. And if you're already a believer now and you've already done that, you can pray for those people here this morning that have not. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. It's just such a beautiful picture, Lord. It's so clear and compelling. And the connection to the Old Testament is very obvious, Lord. This is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Lord, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of looking, you've sent him. The time has come, he says, Lord. We praise your name for what he did, for what he accomplished. But we praise your name, Father, that it wasn't kind of a one and done with him, Lord. That 2,000 years later, we still have the opportunity to repent and believe. And so I pray for that person right now in here, Lord. They've never prayed to receive Christ. I pray you would just right now jolt their heart, Lord. Open their eyes to their sinfulness. Lead them to repentance and salvation and belief. Lord, do a great work in our hearts right now as we sing together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar's open. Opportunity for you to respond. You come this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.